This is John Quinn, and this is Law Disrupted. And today we're going to be talking about data breach litigation. And we've got one of the leading experts and practitioners on the plaintiff side in that area of practice with us. It's Norm Siegel, who is a partner and one of the founders of the Stevie Siegel Hansen firm, which is based in Kansas City, Missouri. He was the lead plaintiff's counsel in a recent $450 million settlement uh, with T-Mobile, which involved a class of up to 76 million plaintiffs who will share in a $350 million recovery. That's a tentatively been approved by the court. And in that settlement, T-Mobile also agreed to spend up to $100 million improving its data security practices. He has been the lead counsel in the three largest data breach settlements reached to date. That's Equifax, this T-Mobile case, and Capital One. In all those cases, the settlements totaled over $2 billion in cash and other relief. He's been involved in numerous other large data breach cases, including one involving Anthem, the Office of Personnel Management, Marriott, and the National Board of Examiners in Optometry. Norm is co-founder of the American Association for Justice's Data Breach and Privacy Group. Norm, this is obviously a, a growing area of practice where companies face very significant exposure and where consumers and individuals and citizens now seem to have the ability to actually get some relief. I remember when the data breach phenomenon and cases originally started many years ago, the plaintiff's bar seemed to struggle with coming up with theories for recovery and also theories for damages, but it seems like that's changed now. Well, John, thanks so much for having me. As you said, this is a evolving issue, and I've been involved in data breach litigation for approximately 10 years. And uh, over that time, there has been some evolution of how at least the plaintiff side has considered both claims and damages. But I would say it is still a long way from uh, something that's definitive, that plaintiffs have their full arms around defendants, and most importantly, the court system. I think what you have, and I'm sure you've seen this in other areas of the law, is emerging technologies and risk uh, on the one hand and lagging uh, statutory schemes and, and how courts consider claims and harms related to those claims that often or may not uh, fit squarely with the types of conduct you're talking about. And I would certainly put data breach litigation into that category. I mean, what are the types of claims that the plaintiff's bar is asserting these days in terms of theories of liability? These cases, I assume, are nationwide class actions that you're involved in. Is that true? They are. They typically are. Are the claims based on uh, state laws, federal laws, common law claims? I mean, can you give us some idea of what the typical claims are? And by the sure. way, I, I, I follow the new case filings. And virtually every day, there's at least one, uh, often more than one, what appears to be a significant data breach case filed. So and this is obviously a super important area of the law. What are the types of claims that the plaintiff's bar is asserting these days? Yeah, John, they've basically been the same claims that have been asserted since the start of this kind of litigation. Uh, those generally fall into the category of, in the first instance, common law claims. Uh, most of those cases that you track, if you look at those complaints, I would uh, venture to guess that count number one is negligence. And so, as I was mentioning before, again, typical common law claims 
You are alleging that in the first instance, the defendant acted with negligence in the way it handled uh, sensitive personal information. There are other related claims like negligence per se, for example, for violating the FTC Act or the little FTC Acts. And then you get into other common law claims that would include breach of confidence, invasion of privacy, uh, basically privacy claims that um, existed at common law and are are ground in um, traditional torts. And also there are many instances where there's a contractual relationship. So either an express contract where uh, you walk into a bank, you sign up for a account, part of that agreement, the bank promises to keep your information uh, strictly confidential. Um, sometimes there's implied agreements that imply the law would imply such an arrangement where you're handing over something sensitive and valuable like your personal information, and there's an implied agreement that the receiver of that information would keep that information confidential. And then, John, I would say the sort of the the overlay of that are what are now very few, but starting uh, statutory claims where states have uh, established specific uh, statutory schemes to address data breaches that also address and allow for damages, statutory damages that really remove those claims in terms of scope and risk from the common law claims because they often attach a statutory penalty or, or damage with those statutory claims. How many states have statutes like that, that recognize those types of claims and remedies? So really primarily California. California really stands alone in terms of its thinking about data breach uh, laws. Other states have certainly introduced legislation that either got watered down or is coming that may track California. But if you just look at California as sort of the, the leading edge of, of states that have addressed the uh, issue, they have created at least a couple of statutes. There's a basic data breach statute, uh, the CCPA, which provides for a statutory penalty. And there is a separate statute that provides relief if medical information was breached. There is a recognition by the California legislature that medical information is particularly valuable and sensitive, and there's a separate statutory scheme addressing the breach of medical information. I think importantly, John, both those acts are relatively new. The elements of those claims are unsettled. And really, just like the way we're dealing with these common law claims, typically in federal court, uh, how courts are dealing with these statutory claims is very much of an evolving issue. As I recall, the California statute actually explicitly recognizes a private right of action, does it not? It does. And both those statutes do. Um, the the CCPA is, is quite broad. It applies to essentially any business in California with revenues in excess of $25 million. There's some other ways to be uh, captured by those statutory terms under the CCPA. And yes, there is a private right of action where the statutory damage is $150 to $750 per individual, provided the plaintiff establishes that the defendant did not implement reasonable security uh, procedures and practices in maintaining that information confidential. And again, what that means, not defined in the statute, and as of yet, 
unsettled. That's something that presumably, uh, since it's not defined in the statute, uh, would be ultimately decided if a case is trialed, tried by expert testimony. In other words, what's the state of the art? What would be reasonable? What are best practices in terms of maintaining data security? Is, is that fair? I think it is fair. It sounds a lot like a negligence standard. What What is the standard of care given these circumstances? Um, there are some various guidelines that the California Attorney General has set out that businesses should be doing to maintain data security. Obviously, the FTC has a similar extensive recommendations about how to use best practices to maintain data security. And of course, the expert overlay is, okay, in this industry, uh, this is what would be expected of a company of this size and scope in the business that uh, this particular defendant is engaged in. What are the kinds of data security measures uh, should this company undertake to keep this information confidential? I should know the answer to this, but does the fact that this is, you know, you've got a nationwide class action, but you've got a California remedy that presumably is only available to some portion of the class, uh, does that create some complexities in terms of prosecuting a nationwide class? Typically, John, what we do in those instances where you do have a nationwide class, and this was very much an issue in the recently settled T-Mobile uh, litigation you mentioned, where you're dealing with tens of millions of plaintiffs. They're spread across the country. Obviously, California, being California, has a material percentage of those folks. You identify separate class representatives that reside in California, and you bring a separate subclass for Californians to assert those specific claims. In the T-Mobile case, it's a good example of we pled that claim, and then when we settled the case, we made sure that there was a recognition of the California statute by providing extra cash relief for those folks that reside in California, because they do have, uniquely have, the CCPA available to them as a claim. So do you typically start out by where you have uh, a California, uh, California consumers and the statute is, is available as a remedy for those members of the class? Do you start out with two different class actions? One may be filed in California, one filed elsewhere, or can you manage that in one one proceeding with a California subclass in that proceeding? It's typically the latter. These are generally uh, MDLs where cases are initially filed, often removed, and then collected in a single court. In this instance, they were collected in the Western District of Missouri before Judge Wimes. And so, yes, he had the uh, jurisdiction to oversee not only the litigation, but ultimately the settlement. And as you mentioned in your introductory remarks, preliminarily approved that a few weeks ago here in Missouri, nationwide for the entire class. But are there other states where there's you know potential similar laws percolating along in state legislatures? There are. There are any number of them. The perhaps more important question is what's going on at the federal level? I was going to ask that next. <laughs> because I think, John, I think the states have rightfully been not waiting around for the federal government to come up with what all of Europe has, which is the GDPR, right? There's a specific regulatory guideline. Everybody knows what the rules are, and it applies to everyone the same way with very specific well thought out, extensive uh, standards behind it. 
here we are we are dealing with this patchwork. So most states, for example, have passed a notification law, which requires in the event of a breach that there is effectively prompt notification to victims within the state of that breach. Different than what we've been talking about earlier in California, which provide these private causes of action. At the federal level, if you look back even the last 10 years that I've been doing this work, there's been any number of starts and stops with federal legislation. And it doesn't seem to matter who's in power, doesn't seem to matter the makeup of, of Congress or, or who are the party of our president. They have not been able to get their act together in a way that provides the type of statutory scheme that exists in Europe under the GDPR. And even within the last few weeks, John, federal legislation was sort of creeping along and we were starting to pay attention to what they were doing. And Nancy Pelosi and others in California said, this is too watered down compared to what we have in California. And she would not support legislation that didn't allow for a more rigorous standard than what was being contemplated in the federal legislation. So I think we are at another point where there's uh, a missed opportunity to have federal legislation and we are going to continue to have this patchwork of, of laws, which is challenging from the plaintiff's side, of course, but is also quite challenging from the defendant's perspective as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I read about that uh, proposed legislation and it, it was characterized as being a kind of the result of a grand bargain uh, between industry groups and uh, consumer groups that on the one hand, you would have federal preemption of these state law claims, all these different claims that that you have to deal with in uh, in your practice, but it would recognize a federal on the federal level, a private right of action. Somehow, it seems like the interest groups were able to get together on that, but in the event, Nancy Pelosi and others couldn't pull the trigger on it. Right, and I think that's probably born out of the fact that, as I as at least my perspective. As that legislation evolved, even though the private cause of action was included, there were too many uh, factors in the legislation, which as compared to what at least California is doing very aggressively and trying to be a leader on this, it just fell well short. And so I, I would just add from the plaintiff's perspective, the idea that you would have, let's just say a standard if it's GDPR, like fine, however you want the standard to apply, the if it's universal, that's fine. I would say in most of our cases, the typical legislation that has been proposed, the types of standards that that have been proposed under those uh, different iterations of legislation, and the type the the standard you sort of described, the negligence standard, in most of our cases, uh, again from our perspective, the defendant would have fallen short of those. And so, you know, typically in the data breach cases that you're seeing filed every day, we are not dealing with um, a standard that would be particularly hard to meet from the defendant's perspective, uh, from the plaintiff's perspective for the defendant's conduct. So you've outlined for us the uh, types of claims that plaintiffs typically assert in these cases. Do those claims generally get through motions to dismiss or in, in some cases, most get through, some get dismissed or at the pleading stage, how do, how do these claims typically fare? I'm, I'm sure it varies court to court, jurisdiction to jurisdiction. 
It does, John, and, and it really raises what is always been in the background in data breach litigation, but has percolated to the top in the last several years, and really in the last year or two since, since the TransUnion versus Ramirez opinion, where standing has just been a threshold issue that in many cases defendants want to address first. Why, why, why is standing an issue? I would think if my data was taken and it's out in the wild now, I would think I have standing. It doesn't seem that complicated. Right. It doesn't. Although several courts have questioned that and, and why they've questioned that is probably explained in, in pretty good detail in uh, Justice Thomas's dissent in TransUnion. Justice Thomas, um, I've called the uh, patron saint of standing in data breach cases because his perspective in Article Three standing is really grounded in traditional concepts of what was a claim at common law. Um, does this look like an invasion of privacy? Could you sue for somebody walking onto your land, even if you couldn't establish damages at common law? Uh, sure you could. And I think what happened over time is some courts took the standing inquiry and immediately processed it as has this person been financially harmed? So John, if you were a victim of a data breach and you had your social security number taken and all your financial information taken and uh, maybe your medical information taken in a different breach um, and you're sitting there at your desk thinking about how you've been financially harmed, there may not be an immediate reaction to that that you could quantify. And I think some courts have been wrapped around the axle on that particular issue in declining to find standing in these data breach cases where you don't have very specific allegations of out-of-pocket loss that are tethered to the data breach. So so the standing issue, it, it sounds like it's really a damages issue. I think it is, generally. It's generally characterized in this two-part, is the injury imminent? So you've had your information compromised. Are you at is there some imminence to an injury? That's the standard under Article 3. And then is that injury concrete? And I think it's that concreteness that um, has caused some courts to trip up. We've had more than one case where the district court dismissed our case for Article 3 uh, standing uh, reasons. We've appealed those to uh, different appellate courts. Um, one in the fourth just got recent opinion last week in the third, reversing those district courts and really applying what, from our perspective, has been the rule all along, that you, you do need to look at concreteness and you do need to look at the imminence of injury, but through a lens of these common law torts that is really laid out in the way Justice Thomas describes this inquiry in TransUnion. There's a case, I think it's called Spokio, right. that has some relevance here. Basically, I can't remember what the standard is, but it does speak to the need to show some specific actual injury. That's right. And and I think what's important in Spokio and, and cases that followed it is those were purely federal statutory claims. So if you have a claim under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, or occasionally you have, you'll see uh, claims brought under the statute that limits the digits in your a credit card that can appear in your receipt. Some federal courts were saying, you know, no harm, no foul. I think the quote from TransUnion is uh, no injury, no standing. Well, sure, those are sort of broad 
uh, senses of standing, but it's it's really viewed through the wrong lens in our, in our view. And Spokio and then TransUnion, I think, added some more color to that standard. So TransUnion, I think, is a is a really good case for the plaintiffs. Um, TransUnion was a case where TransUnion had this service where they were identifying uh, what were terrorists, major drug dealers, or otherwise likely serious criminals based on a name comparison in a database. They were, they didn't do anything else other than do a name check. So if there was a John Quinn who was identified as a terrorist, the next time um, you went to the airport or somebody used that TransUnion service, you would be flagged. And what happened was there was a group of about 8,000 in this class that went all the way through trial where they were part of this group that were misidentified as being on this watch list. Now, what was interesting is there were uh, 2,000 roughly of those folks where TransUnion admitted that it provided that information on a report to a third party. And what the, if you look at the Supreme Court's opinion, and this is what I think is critically important for your listeners on this topic, with respect to that group that had their information that identified them as a terrorist transmitted to a third party, the Supreme Court blew by that standing inquiry. Of course, those people had standing, the Supreme Court said. What it had a challenge to and a concern with were the folks that where that information was reported. Uh, it was in TransUnion records, but wasn't by stipulation provided to a third party. And that was the evidence in the case. And I think what's interesting is even Justice Thomas, in addition to the other dissenters in TransUnion, would have found that second group where the information wasn't even transmitted would have had standing. But the entire court found that if your information was transmitted and it identified you as a terrorist, you had a claim under this federal statute because that's the type of claim that would be ground in common law. And they had no problem finding standing with respect to that group. And what has happened, and we guess right on this, is that most lower courts have said, yeah, look at look at that group. Because typically in our cases, you're talking about data being compromised or moved from the defendant typically to a third party in an unauthorized way. And the Supreme Court just had no problem finding standing with respect to that group in TransUnion. Yeah, if I'm on a watch list and I get a problem and I'm flagged by TSA going through airports, I'm, I'm thinking I'm damaged and I have standing. <laughs> right. Well, sure. But um, even the even the people that just had this reported to a third party, even if they didn't go through an airport, even if they didn't have a credit check where this came up, those folks had standing because that false information about is you being uh, a potential there. terrorist um, was transmitted to a third party. And that is, um, I really think, a helpful dichotomy in TransUnion itself that has been guiding the court since TransUnion, and I think will to continue to do so, um, including most recently in that Third Circuit case, which is uh, Clemens versus ExecuFarm, where it's another one where case was dismissed on standing grounds in the trial court. We appealed it to the Third Circuit. They actually looked at TransUnion as support for finding standing in a case where, yes, all of this information was stolen from the defendant. It was compromised. It was published to a third party. And that's the inquiry we should be looking at under TransUnion, reverse the trial court and found standing.
Is this standing issue uh, generally resolved at the pleading stage, or is that something that you end up litigating uh, in discovery and in the case going forward? Yeah, traditionally, right off the bat, you see a Rule 12 motion that there's no standing, sometimes in conjunction with the 12B6 motion, um, which I think was your original question, John. Right. But yep. um, it's, it's very often brought initially, but we have had cases um, including the Capital One case, where it continued to be litigated throughout the case. And of course, standing is living and breathing throughout the arc of litigation. So standing has to be established on the front end under a Rule 12 standard, but all along the way, including at the summary judgment stage under Rule 56 standard. After you've gone through discovery, the standard for deciding whether they're standing uh, under those standards we've been talking about it shifts to a summary judgment standard. And so we have had instances where it has been litigated beyond the initial motion practice, but typically it's right off the bat, out of the gate under Rule 12. Beyond standing, what what other defenses do the defendants typically raise in these cases? Right, so uh, almost always see a Rule 12 motion um, and it generally attacks the idea that there is in the first instance, negligence. Um, in cases where there's not this contractual relationship, there is often a challenge to the very duty to even protect this information. So in the contractual relationship where the parties have agreed, well, that's one thing, but here um, there's nothing in the common law that would say we are obligated to protect this information. Uh, that was an issue that was heavily litiga litigated um, in the uh, Equifax litigation, for example, there was an agreement that Georgia law applied to the Equifax data breach for over 100 million victims. And there was a real question about whether Georgia law would say that the defendant Equifax in this instance, which was a, a non-party to any relationship of the plaintiffs, right? Equifax just collects data from others. There was a real question whether Equifax owed any duty to the plaintiffs. It was an issue that candidly going in, I thought, well, of course they do. They are, they possess it. So they should owe a duty to these class members to protect it. But um, that was not, it was not as clear as we had hoped going in. And that issue is really one that was litigated after Equifax through the Georgia uh, state courts with mixed results. And I think other states are grappling with this issue as well. I think, um, Capital One's another really good example of this. Um, Capital One challenged whether Virginia law would apply any duty to Capital One um, under a negligence standard to keep this data confidential. Uh, our very, very experienced, well-qualified trial judge in the Eastern District of Virginia ruled in our favor, but certified the question to the Virginia Supreme Court, which ultimately de declined to take it. So that's uh -huh. another major issue that is teed up often in these larger data breach cases. Can a defendant in its uh, terms of service disclaim this duty? And, and do some of them do that? And does that get tested? Well, John, we haven't seen it. I think it would be pretty hard to disclaim a duty, at least one imposed by law, by, by contract. And I do think that where you have statutory schemes like California, which other states are trying to push along and one form or another, that's obviously going to be right. out the door. So I, I do think that would be very difficult 
to do as a practical matter. But um, if these states continue to try to focus on this issue, largely impossible. For example, right. since most states have notice requirements, um, I don't think you can contract your way out of the notice obligation in the event of a breach. Sure. Not a statutory obligation, but I wondered whether on a negligence theory or implied contract theory, whether they could a defendant could have created a defense by having some type of disclaimer. But what I'm hearing is you haven't actually seen that. Haven't seen it. So what what tends to be the focus of discovery? I mean, once you've got the pleading settled, I mean, what is the focus of the plaintiff's discovery? What tends to be the focus of the defendant's discovery? Well, let's start with the defendant's discovery, because I think that's really interesting the way that's evolved. Typically, what we see in current litigation is a almost uh, unified interest and focus on the damages question. And that's smart because that is the the biggest challenge in states other than California where you don't have a statutory claim. And so the defendants, I think, have really um, turned their attention from spending an enormous amount of time trying to establish that we did everything we could have done to prevent this. And instead have said, this was a criminal act, whether or not we could have prevented it is, we'll put over here for now, we'll put to the side, and we'll focus on, okay, how have you really been harmed under these, again, common law claims typically that um, you've alleged in this case? So deposing the plaintiffs, trying to get a real uh, record of what the harms are is typically the defendant's focus in these cases. And likewise, that's our focus. And when we do discovery, we're doing a couple things. On, on the liability front, we very much are focused on the mechanism of breach in many of these cases, there is a uh, record in the industry or the specific defendant of failed data security practices. And so, you know, you may see a big data breach, but they may have had five others over the last 10 years, or it may be in an industry that is constantly dealing with criminals trying to get access to the information because it is valuable. And so we do focus on that and use a lot of experts to help us with that. But we spend... Uh, the vast majority of our time focused on the damages component of data breach uh, litigation. It is, it, is, it is unlike an antitrust case where you walk in and have a pure sort of economic model on, oh, the price should have been X, instead it was X plus Y, and the delta is the damage. And we are left with... Um, I think very good, but creatively applied damages theories in these cases. Yeah, I have the impression, uh, I'm interested to hear about this, that there's really been a lot of uh, evolution and creativity brought to bear on the damages side in this practice area. I remember many years ago, there was a hack at Sony Pictures. I think it emanated from North Korea, right? Uh, relating to a, a movie that did not portray the leader of North Korea in a very favorable light. Uh, the North Koreans didn't have a sense of humor about that. So they attacked. And there were several class actions filed. There was a lot of data release. But I then remember the cases were settled for like a tiny amount. You know, it, obviously, if, if your credit card information is taken, then somebody uses your credit card, you have a loss, your credit's damaged. It's really easy to see what the damages are from something like that. On the other hand, if uh, 
there's a disclosure of some number of the digits of your social security number, but not maybe the whole social security number or, um, you know, some information is in the wild, but it can't necessarily be traced to you. Uh, and some of these that or a notice, let's say there's a failure to comply with a notice. You know, I didn't learn about this for five months or whatever. Um, it does take some thought. It's not obvious necessarily what the damages are that accrue from some of those things. Right. And I think, as you said, the uh, evolution of how on the plaintiff side we've thought about that has really occurred uh, over the last five years, I think, in in most respects. Um, you know, if you crack open the restatement on damages, there's a whole slew of ideas that may not occur to the uh, the average uh, practitioner or even complex litigator um, just because they're unfamiliar and atypical of what we typically see. And I could think you give most us, people. Could, could you give us some examples? Sure, sure. So I, I think let, let's start with sort of the, the basic ones. You mentioned um, somebody who suffers a direct out-of-pocket harm. And I think that is the one damage that everybody naturally can get their arm around. I had a fraud. It was $1,000. I can show that the fraud occurred after the breach involving the data that was compromised in the breach and published on the dark web. And that's a pretty good claim for $1,000 for your out-of-pocket loss. We've talked about statutory damages, at least in California, which are, which are obviously there. And then you are talking about these other more creative uh, damages theories, which have gained some traction. So for example, if you have a contractual a, a relationship because you signed up for a rewards program at a um, restaurant or um, hotel, um, or you have a new account at a bank and you do have this contractual relationship and you have terms and conditions. And particularly in those relationships where you are paying some amount of money or a fee for those services, one argument that has been made with some success over the last several years is that a portion of the fee you are paying, the amount you are paying for the defendant for those goods or services should have gone to data security that you promised to provide under the agreement. And then you're talking about an economic analysis of, okay, was that 2%? Is it one half of 1%? What is the percentage of that dollar that you've handed over for those goods or services that the defendant should have used to implement data security that they failed to do that resulted in the breach. Um, that would be a, a an unjust enrichment claim. Um, in some instances, it could be characterized as I didn't get the benefit of my bargain. Um, in other instances, depending on the state law. Another example um, of sort of the unjust enrichment concept is that, uh, as you know, a lot of businesses use data to make money. And so if your data was handed over again under one of these contractual relationships or or implied contractual relationships and the defendant took that data and used it to and and sold it to a third party to sell you ads and they they made money. They were able to take some dollars by the use of your private data that they were supposed to keep confidential and that data was compromised, we we have asserted a claim that, okay, um, you are unjustly enriched by the use of that data. 
And it would be um, unjust for the defendant to retain those profits that were born out of keeping data that you should have kept confidential that you didn't. That I would say is a uh, another evolving theory of damage. And then I just have to mention, because in these larger cases, it's significant, is the concept of nominal damage. And this, this really brings it full circle back to how Justice Thomas thinks about these traditional torts at common law, which is once the violation occurs, you've been harmed. The, the quantification of those damages, if you're unable to do it, there is an alternative, and that is a nominal damage. If you have 100 million class members and you have a nominal damage multiplied across the class, you are talking about significant exposure as sort of a floor in these larger cases. And some states have identified nominal damages that for individuals could be $100. In the California statutes, they call the statutory damage a nominal damage. That's $1,000, right? So um, we're not always talking about, I think, what people think about on nominal damages, which is a dollar per head necessarily. But even at a dollar per head against 100 million people, if you're a defendant thinking about a large breach and what your maybe minimum risk is on the damages side, it's probably that kind of nominal damages. Well, the T-Mobile settlement, I mean, the headline number was for $450 million, which is a lot of money, but I read the class, that was 76 million people. I don't know what the arithmetic works out to in right. terms of, you know, the recovery per class member, but it's not a lot. Right. So this has been a major challenge in these, in these cases. Um, if you were to apply, say, well, everybody should get a thousand dollars and you have a hundred million victims. Um, that would bankrupt most of the S&P 500 companies. Not all, most, $100 billion exposure. So the question becomes, okay, how do you allocate resources in a settlement to the victims of a data breach? And it's a, it's a really important question. And on the plaintiff side, we talk about it all the time because we're always trying to improve sort of the structure of these settlements to address the issue you're raising. And so what, what we have found is that when we talk to people, and we do talk to hundreds or thousands of people in some instances in these cases that are victims of these breaches, most of them, the first thing they say is, I've just spent five hours calling every bank. I had to unwind this fraudulent charge. I don't think I'm necessarily out $1,000, but in cash, but I, I definitely have spent a bunch of time uh, dealing with this issue. So really going back several years, we've included the ability to claim lost time in these cases and structuring these settlements around what people really identify as their harm has been our focus. So of course we have what you identified. I'm out of pocket. I lost $1,000 typically. You can claim losses in many cases up to 10,000, in T-Mobile up to $25,000 of a claimed out-of-pocket loss. It's true that not many people have that. And so we give them alternative relief in the form of claims for lost time. They're also able to access very high quality uh, identity monitoring, which is another thing that 
a lot of people want after breach. How can I be protected? And we do this two ways, John. We have a we include a product you can sign up for. And not everybody wants to sign up for another product and have provide information that would allow this company to monitor their accounts to know whether they've been potentially a victim of a of an identity uh, incident. So what we do is we make sure these services apply to the entire class if you do have an event. So an after the fact event, if you receive the notice of the T-Mobile data breach and you did nothing, and then a month after the claims period ran, runs out, you have an issue. Um, you're like, oh, this looks like a potential fraud related to the T-Mobile data breach. There is a domestic call center you can call, which will give you support on how to deal with that. And that is next to the time component of I spent all this time dealing with this breach. People want somebody they can pick up and call to address issues if they do have a problem. Right. And so those two factors have been sort of now, I think, onboarded into most of the larger data breach settlements out there. The idea that you have you have, sure, we're going to pay your out-of-pocket losses. We're going to allow for you to make a claim for lost time. We are going to provide this monitoring product that you have to sign up for. But even if you don't, if you have an issue, there's a way to get help. Yeah. And then finally, in many of these cases, we spend a lot of time working with our experts and the defendant on ensuring that there are business practice changes that improve the data security. So as a plaintiff's lawyer thinking about how we can deliver value or benefit to this enormous class, that is a key one. Let's try to make sure that these folks that are still likely customers of the defendant, the defendant still likely holds their data, that they're not going to be victims in the future, and that we are curing or attempting to cure the deficiencies that led to the breach in the first place. I mean, as a practical matter, uh, practicing in this area on the plaintiff side, since the individual claims are not likely to be very large, I assume that these cases are really only feasible if you have very, very large cases. I mean, the AT&T one was over 76 million plaintiffs. I mean, is that a fair statement? You, you, it's, it's just not viable to pursue a case, an ordinary case at least, where you don't have something really out of the, uh, out of the usual, unless you have tens of millions of class members. Is that a fair statement? Not necessarily. Certainly, those cases get the headlines, John, and the and the nine figure and up settlements. But we've handled smaller cases. So the you mentioned uh, in your opening remarks the uh, NBEO, the National Board of Examiners in Optometry. This is the board that, that governs eye doctor exams for the country, and they had data going back uh, many many years of test takers in the tens of thousands. Um, not millions, but these were all people sitting for their boards to become eye doctors in the country. And they had a data breach. And all of this information, which included their social um, and their name and address, often an old address, sometimes a parent's address, sometimes a maiden name. But this information was breached. It was a smaller class, but of a, um, a group of victims that were very upset about what happened with the very board that they tested with. And we were, this is a case that was dismissed 
for standing grounds. We appealed it to the Fourth Circuit, got it reversed, and ended up with a multi-million dollar settlement in that case with a structure similar to what I've described in the larger case for that class of people. And again, for that class of people, it wasn't necessarily that they were out of pocket $10,000 or um, uh, had a, a demonstrable economic loss that they could prove in court. They lost a bunch of time. They There was a Facebook group that had well over a thousand of these high doctors talking about just the burden of trying to deal with the aftermath of a data breach. And so that's why when we're thinking about how to resolve these cases, large or small, we're thinking about what we're hearing from those victims. You know, they, they didn't want it to happen in the first place, but now that it's happened, I don't want it to happen again. And are there ways we can address other economic injuries like the amount of time I spent dealing with it? Is there a way to protect me with monitoring? And who do I call if I have a problem? All those things go into the basket of relief we try to deliver to class members. Many of those things wouldn't necessarily be available at trial. Right. Uh, have you actually tried any of these cases or you, have you been able to settle them all? So no trials uh, okay. in any data breach case, class action case I'm aware of. There have been a couple that have made it as far as uh, class certification. Um, the Capital One case settled after class certification and cross motions for summary judgment were argued. And so that made it, that was a heavily litigated case that made it pretty far down the field. The Marriott data breach case was certified as a class action um, and it is still pending. And so there are cases out there where you certainly could make it through those procedural hurdles and you end up you end up at a trial. Um, we certainly got very close in Capital One and thought we were headed there when the case resolved. So I think it's uh, it's inevitable it will happen. Uh, John, like you, I like to try cases. I've tried class actions on the plaintiff side. They're few and far between. Um, and I think because of the unknowns on both sides in the data breach world, for all the reasons we talked about earlier, the claims, unsettled new statutory claims, the damages, a lot of this, despite being traditional common law claims in many instances, is novel to the parties and to the courts. And therefore, that that significant risk on both sides, as you know, often leads to settlement. Which brings up the uh, the next question: Is how do you settle these cases? I mean, I mean, we're involved in cases on both the plaintiff side and the defense side, where how you settled is really, really the challenge. I mean, we're involved now in the uh, on the plaintiff side in the 3M earplugs litigation, where the court had uh, 15 cases tried just to help the parties try to figure out what are these cases worth. Uh, and there were some defense verdicts, uh, but it was mostly plaintiff's verdicts. And if you run the numbers, including the ones where there were defense verdicts across, you know, the 300,000 claims that have been cases that have been filed, you come up to a number over a trillion dollars, uh, which obviously 3M doesn't have. So it presents... And and we're involved, but we've had other cases like this on the defense side, where we represented sure. USC University of Southern California, that had a doctor who was engaging in some inappropriate practices in the student health center, 
you had a class of women students over the year of like 25,000. And if you looked at benchmark that against some of the other cases, uh, Johns Hopkins, uh, Michigan State, I mean, you come up with some really, really hard number, high numbers that makes these cases hard to settle. What can you tell us about the process about getting to a settlement? And do you use outside help? Do you use mediators? Do courts get involved? I'm sure the answer is it's, it's different in every case, but what have you learned and, and what can you share with us about the process for getting a successful settlement for both sides? Well, we too are involved in 3M and I would note those uh, defense wins, I think were largely defense picks in the MDL. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, <laughs> you, I, you... <laughs> there, there are cases where either the jury thinks, this is my view and for what I've heard, jury thinks uh, there wasn't a hearing loss or there's a causation issue in that the, the plaintiff had a hearing problem before it ever went into the military. Right, that's right. I think there's largely causation has tripped up the plaintiffs in those yeah, cases. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 I tried one of those cases in game. Okay. <laughs> and so I've, I I know the documents and on the liability side, as you know, these are extremely powerful cases yeah. on the plaintiff side. Yeah. But I mean, the challenge, we, we don't have a settlement in that case. Right. We don't have the earplug. We're a long ways, as you know. So, I mean, how do, how do you settle these cases? Yeah. So I think settlement, and this obviously um, cuts across not just data breach litigation, but all litigation, I think is in the first instance, always a function of uh, the quality of work you're putting out on your side of the V, plaintiff or defendant. And then uh, secondly, your relationship with opposing counsel. And we really pride ourselves on putting out work that is as good or better than our opponents, um, often the largest law firms in the world, to, to basically gain credibility, not just with the court, but with opposing counsel and their clients. And then, as you know, you're, you're in a much better spot when you can have these pitched battles in court, but you can also pick up the phone with your opposing counsel and have a dialogue, have an off the record conversation about where the case is headed. Tell me, you know, what do you think needs to happen before we can have a serious conversation about resolution? Do we need to get past the motion to dismiss? Do you, do you want to litigate that? Okay, let's go litigate. All right, we've won the motion to dismiss. We won most of our claims. There's some stuff that didn't survive. Let's take a fair look at on both sides, how that impacts the value of the case is now a good time. And having the ability to sort of consistently have that conversation with opposing counsel uh, is incredibly valuable. And of course, those conversations, uh, I, I think are, are very important on the front end. But of course, as you said, using outside help, very often needed, often to assist, if not the counsel, the parties or the clients. And we've had many cases where we've had numerous mediations and the cases didn't settle, but the parties continued to have that dialogue and settled after the conclusion, sometimes many months after the conclusion of the mediation, because there was the commitment to an open dialogue. I do think we've been um, fortunate in the MDL cases that the uh, MDL panel takes great care on who was, they're assigning these cases to. And so more often than not, you end up with experienced jurists 
who are also looking at, okay, what should I prioritize from the court's perspective to move this case along in a way that I think will prompt resolution? And if not, how quickly can we get it to trial, which as you know, often prompts resolution. Um, it's the it's the last best tool in the kit is uh, a trial date, which uh, I know you've seen many times as being the impetus for settlement. So I think the short answer to your question is all the above. Um, right. But it begins with good work on the front end and open communications with the other side. Well, with just one uh, final question on nomenclature, um, I'm interested in how you look at the issue of data breach and data breach claims on the one hand and privacy claims on the other hand. I mean, privacy is such increasingly such a hot topic. Are the two equivalent in your mind or do you have data breach cases that don't really involve privacy issues? I know you can have privacy cases that don't involve data breach where you know you have defendants who are knowingly sharing private information with third parties. But is do you have privacy issues in all your cases? Is it possible to think about data breach as a separate body of law and type of claim that doesn't necessarily include privacy? So I think there's overlap. I think if you were to draw diagrams, you would have a overlapping circle, portion of those two circles between privacy and data breach. And in there, when you think about a typical data breach, you have the sort of hallmarks of a data breach. There was data that's confidential in the defendant's possession that was compromised, maybe out on the dark web. Those, those concepts, that's sort of the, the hallmark of a data breach. We have data that was breached. Depending on what that data is and how the claims are constructed around that, you do have aspects of privacy. And again, this gets back to sort of equating some of these common law claims with the way Justice Thomas characterizes them as these claims at common law for invasion of privacy. Does this look like an invasion of privacy that you had my medical data and you gave it to a third party bill collector and they had a massive breach? Well, I gave you the medical provider my data. You're obligated to protect it. That's private information. That certainly would be, I think, in the where the overlap is. We also have privacy cases, and there's a whole sort of separate area and probably a separate podcast that deal with things that I think are, at least today, more traditionally, the legal system is treating as privacy cases. For example, privacy case we are um, close to resolving deals with how apps are tracking you when you ask them not to track. So if you have an app on your phone, and at least if you have an iPhone, it says ask app not to track and you slide ask app not to track. And there's some other mechanism they're using to track you through their software and their in their app. Well, that that's more of a privacy. Like the, uh, the, the Facebook pixel that were correct. A lot, of, a lot of cases are being filed. A lot of cases that I would say track that. And then I think importantly, there's like a whole nother separate statutory scheme that's trying to address that. Illinois has their Biometric Privacy Act that provides statutory damages. If somebody's scanning your retina and keeping that data or your fingerprint. And so these are definitely evolving issues of privacy that are probably not in the traditional way we've thought about data breach. Well, this has been very interesting, Norm. Uh, very much appreciate your spending 
some time with us today and sharing your experience in this very important developing area of the law. We've been talking to Norman Siegel of the Stevie Siegel Hansen Law Firm in Kansas City, one of the leading practitioners in the, in the United States in data breach litigation. Thank you, Norm. Thank you, John. Really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Law Disrupted with me, John Quinn. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, lawdisrupted.fm. If you enjoyed the show, please share a link on social media and follow at JBQ Law or at Quinn Emanuel. Thank you for tuning in. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com. Thank you.